What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. This Scientific American podcast is brought to you by audible.com, your source for audiobooks and more. Audible.com features more than 100,000 titles, including science books you've been meaning to check out, like Dan Ariely's The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, How We Lie to Everyone, Especially Ourselves, and Richard Panic's The 4% Universe, Dark Matter, Dark Energy, and The Race to Discover the Rest of Reality. Right now, Audible.com is offering a free audiobook and a one-month trial membership to the Scientific American audience. For details, go to audible.com slash Siam. Welcome to the Scientific American Podcast Science Talk, hosted on March 26th, 2013. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... Putting a single human gene in a goat doesn't make that goat a human, the same way it's routine procedure now for a lot of human heart patients to get a pig valve, and that doesn't make them a pig. That's Emily Anthes. She's a science journalist whose writings have appeared in Scientific American as well as Wired, Discover, and other publications. She's also the author of the new book Frankenstein's Cat, Cuddling Up to Biotech's Brave New Beasts. It's a Scientific American slash Farrer, Strauss, and Giroux title. We spoke at the Scientific American offices. Emily, these wacky scientists, <laughs> what are they up to? A little bit of everything, uh, as I found out. It's uh, genetic modifying, genetically modifying pretty much everything in every way you can imagine, cloning animals, implanting sensors in their bodies, hijacking their brains and their nervous systems. If uh, they can dream it, they're starting to be able to do it. Really, the things of science fiction are starting to become reality. What struck me is that some of this stuff has been going on for decades, but in, let's say, um, bacteria. Right. We'll insert a gene into bacteria to get the bacteria to produce a desired product. But now that we're doing it in goats, for example, it seems like a lot of people are very edgy about this prospect. Right. And I'm not sure even that many people know that drugs are currently made in bacteria. Exactly. I think if people did, they might not be too pleased with it. But, of course, the the bigger the animal you get, the cuter it gets, the more it sort of has human sympathies, the more disturbed people seem to be by these procedures and processes. Why don't we talk about what's going on with the goats? Sure. So it's... Um, it's a field known as farming with a pH for pharmaceuticals and, and farming. And um, essentially, it's a way to produce pharmaceutical products. A lot of the compounds that our bodies naturally make are good medicine, but they're hard to produce on an industrial scale. They're complicated proteins. They have to be folded just so and have special sugars on them. Uh, and bacteria aren't very good at making them, and it's hard to make them in cell culture. So scientists realized that they might be able to get dairy animals to make them. They make all these complicated proteins in their milk. So in one project, for instance, there are these goats in uh, California, and they've been engineered to make high levels of lysozyme in their milk. Lysozyme is an antimicrobial uh, uh, protein, and it 
may be responsible for some of the sort of protective effects of human breast milk. It's very concentrated in breast milk. And the, what it does is, in its name, it it lyses cells. It explodes cells. Right. Bacterial cells Bacterial in particular. Cells. Right. So things like E. coli and other sort of nasty microbes that you don't want to be infected with. And so the idea is that if you give kids this sort of lysozyme supercharged GM goat's milk, that maybe it will burst the bacteria that they're infected with. Maybe you can be used to treat or prevent diarrheal disease, which is a big problem in, in the developing world. And again, a similar kind of procedure uh, to make other things has been done in bacteria for a long time. But w now that we can do it, and as you said, it, it, certain substances may be harder to do in bacteria than others. And mammals, which are closer to us, are uh, a, a better kind of venue to try to do that in. And so, you know, in some ways, it's a win-win. The, the goats themselves seem to benefit from it as well. They do. And that's, you know, always a concern with engineering is how is it going to affect the animal. But in this case, because it's you know, an antimicrobial protein, as it happens, it seems to protect, protect the goats from various infections of the udder. So, you know, and, and these goats also seem to have pretty normal lives, as far as normal as any other dairy animal. So they don't really know that they're these engineered creatures or that they're making this protein in their milk. They're just going about their daily goat lives. Daily goat lives. Exactly. <laughs> One thing that, that um, comes up sometimes, I don't know if it gets discussed maybe as much as I think it should, is that these creatures, domesticated animals especially, are not natural anyway, in a way. They're, we have been designing these animals for thousands of years. We just have, haven't been able to do it with the precision and the delicacy that we do now. Whenever you breed a strain of agricultural animal for a specific purpose, you're doing the same kind of thing, but on a grosser level. Exactly. And I mean, that's one of the things I wanted to do in the book is sort of put these developments in context. You know, they absolutely are an escalation of our powers. And you know, as you say, they give us new precision, uh, precision. They allow us to make these changes faster than we might otherwise make them. But we've been shaping animals for millennia. And so the ethical questions that that raises about, you know, meddling or playing God or those sort of critiques you often hear, those aren't new questions. They're things that could be applied to what we've been doing. And we've managed to do uh, plenty of harm with selective breeding as well. It's not just biotechnology that gives us tools to do harm. Right. The, the, the Frankenstein's cat is out of the bag, if you will, exactly. on that issue. This is just a way to do it much faster and better. Because if you do it tra with traditional breeding, you have to wait generations and may maybe dozens, maybe even hundreds of generations. This way you can do it in one generation if you're, if you're lucky. And there may be things you just plain can't do with selective breeding. I mean, when you start to talk about bringing in genes from other species or a particular gene in a particular spot, you may never be able to get there with selective right. breeding. Now, people might freak out because 
we've put a human gene into the goat. And I, let me tell you a story. Sure. About, about 10 years ago, I was having a discussion with some people, and the subject came up. I can't remember the, the real details, but a fish protein, I believe, that had the effect of keeping ice cream smoother so that mm-hmm. it wouldn't crystallize when, um, when it was in the freezer for too long was being added to some brands of ice cream. I huh. think that's it. Even if it isn't, it, <laughs> it, the case is, as a hypothetical, can right. still work. So um, somebody I knew said, well, I wouldn't want to eat ice cream that had fish protein in it. And I said, do you have any idea how much of you is fish protein? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, we, we already share... You know, let me pull a number out of my hat. If if we're 99% the same as a chimp, we're like 90% the same as a goat genetically. Right. So what's the big deal out of making us 90.00001% the same as a goat? Right. It's threatening, I think, to a lot of people, this idea, first of all, that we could make our own DNA work in another species sort of – threatens the idea of human uniqueness and human superlativeness, which, of course, there is nothing that unique about us at the genetic level. The whole, you know, point of the genetic code is that it's, you know, these four letters and they are the same in all these species. And the fact that you can swap genes around makes makes people nervous. And there are legitimate concerns ethically when you start to talk about getting into the brain and perhaps creating creatures that, you know, aren't fully animal and aren't fully human. Right, like, did you see that movie Deep Blue Sea? I did not. Where they make the really smart sharks and they, the sharks no. kill everybody. No. Yeah, so it's like that. I see. <laughs> well. But, I mean, the point is that not every tweak causes those same concerns. Putting a single human gene in a goat doesn't make that goat a human the same way it's routine procedure now for a lot of human heart patients to get a pig valve and that doesn't make them a pig so it's i understand the concern but i also think that if you really think about it and, and break it down that it doesn't really hold up to scrutiny yeah your title is frankenstein's cat which sounds a little ominous but then your subtitle is cuddling up to biotech's brave new beasts to kind of indicate that there are two sides to this whole business. Right, right. And that's one of the things I wanted to do is sort of provide a nuanced look at at these advances. And I think there's a lot of coverage of sort of the apocalyptic potential of biotechnology. And, you know, some people talk about the good, but These are technologies that are very often viewed in black and white. You know, all cloning is good, all cloning is bad, so on. And my point is that you can't make such blanket statements. You really need to get into the nitty-gritty of each proposed application and evaluate it on its own merits. It's just sort of a tool or a technique, and it doesn't have a lot of ethical meaning on its own. What kind of regulatory systems are in place I mean, you can't, as a researcher, can you just say, well, I'm going to put in uh, a, the gene of human growth hormone gene into my dairy cattle? 
nobody can tell me not to. No, there are people who can tell you not to. Uh, there are sort of some general animal welfare laws in the U.S. that cover sort of general aspects of how lab animals can be treated and what researchers have to provide for them. But animal research at the institutional level is also governed the same way that some human research is, which is uh, institutional review boards. And there has to be some compelling scientific interest or benefit, you have to sort of make a case that someone's going to benefit from this, that you're not just screwing around for the sake of it. Is there a way for any, uh, let's say, uh, not an academic setting, but in a uh, corporate setting for researchers to do some kind of transgenic that nobody would know about? I'm sure you could. Uh, I think if you sort of don't take federal money and aren't affiliated with the federal system in any way, it loosens you from some restrictions. But in theory, there are still sort of some basic animal welfare regulations that you're supposed to comply with. But it gets much harder to regulate and police sort of outside a university system or something like that. Speaking of human growth hormone, you talk about uh, this attempt to insert human growth hormone into a line of pigs. Yes. And that didn't go so great. That did not go so great. It was one of the first sort of attempts to re-engineer animals genetically to be more useful to us. And the idea was that these pigs would be pork, they would be meat, and that if you put a human growth hormone gene in them, they might be leaner, they'd be grow, they'd grow faster, they would require less food. And in all those ways, the experiment was a success. But for reasons that are still a little bit unclear, it seemed to cause every health problem in the book in these pigs. Um, you know, arthritis, eye problems, early death, thickened skin, I mean, everything that you can think of. Um, so it's sort of a one of the cases that's often held up is how animals can suffer as a result of these things. What I don't understand is why the impulse to use gro human growth hormone when there's a pig growth hormone. So why did they, why not just up their levels of porcine growth hormone before jumping over to HGH? That's a good question. I, I don't know what the thinking was behind that. I mean, it could have been those were earlier days of genetic research. It could have been something as simple as the practical matter of perhaps HGH had already been cloned in a lab and the pig growth hormone hadn't. Mm -hmm. might have just been easier to access. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not sure what the theory was behind it. Yeah, that makes sense. Because, you know, if I'm, if I'm trying to make a bigger and better pig, right. maybe I'll just use their own growth hormone. Right. That seems to be the logical thing to do. Anyway, um... You also talk about um, these insects that are being made sort of cyborgian or biotic, bionic, not biotic. And um, insects are kind of creepy anyway. Exactly. <laughs> right? And that's I, I think that absolutely contributes to the sci-fi apocalyptic aspect of yeah. these things. So they've created like cockroaches that you can use a remote control and, and make them go left or right. Exactly. And uh, even some slightly more sophisticated things with beetles and moths in university labs, they 
can not only make them go left and right, but they can force them to start flying and stop flying. Um, and the idea is that you could use these sort of cyborg insects the way you might use a tiny little drone, perhaps, to send them into some sort of inhospitable territory or dangerous place you wouldn't want humans to go and scope out the scene, collect and transmit surveillance data, sort of both for the military and potentially for civilian uses. That's a little speculative at this point. Um, our control over them is still pretty crude, so they're not quite battle ready, but that's the idea. And this is DARPA is working on this? DARPA funded the original research. I heard recently that DARPA had sort of moved on because drone, as drone technology is advanced, they're sort of, I don't know if they're still actively throwing money at it. The researchers are still doing this work, but the original grants may have expired and from DARPA. DARPA is the defense. Yes. Uh, it's the Pentagon's sort of research and development arm. Right. Um, and they definitely were the impetus for this research. You know, whether they still are hoping to use it or whether they've moved on to something else, I'm not totally sure. And you actually got a chance to to remote control a roach, right? Right. And so one of the interesting things to me and the surprises for me in in doing this research was how fast some of these super cutting-edge technologies are trickling out to the public. And so there are these university researchers who are doing these cyborg insects, but there's also a company that's sprung up called Backyard Brains that sort of makes these tools available to the general public. So for $100, you can go online and order this robo-roach and sort of have your own cyborg insect. So I met with the founders of that company, and they brought some of their robo-roaches, and we sort of steered them around the sidewalk in, in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. So you can order the roach and... and well, the kit actually does not include the roaches. <laughs> it's You can order the roaches separately. You have to... So this company's mission is to sort of uh, improve neuroscience education and give people real hands-on access to the tools of neuroscience. So part of that is constructing it yourself. So it comes with all the parts you need, and they're, it's actually very simple. But there are videos online for how you build the roach, and you order the roaches separately, and you can sort of put this this critter together. How do you actually do Don't you have to put something into their brains? Well, so the reason they chose cockroaches is because they're, as they say, quote, practically designed to be a cyborg, they use their antenna as sort of for a whole bunch of navigational functions. And the antenna are actually just hollow fluid-filled tubes. So you anesthetize the cockroach. I want to point that out. And while it's under, you snip off the ends of its antenna and you just thread a wire into each one. And that, I mean, that's it. Then any impulse you send down the antenna essentially goes straight into their nervous system. It's surprisingly easy. <laughs> wow. It makes me, there's this commercial where uh, some dopey guy uh, uses all of his accumulated credit card points to get himself a weather balloon and and uh, take video of the weather balloon going up. And his friend says, you used all your points on a weather balloon? And the guy says, yes, I did. And I always imagine his friend saying, you idiot. Right. <laughs> but... Uh, it'd be a much better use of his points to go get one of these roaches. And uh, and you they're not that expensive. I don't even know that you need that many points. 
<laughs> so you, you have your $100 roach and right. you, uh, you show it to your friends and then it scurries away and, and it's off in the wild or in the baseboards of your house. Yes, perhaps baseboards of your house. It's also, I mean, it's, I guess, reversible, if you will. Like oh. you have these wires and then the circuit board you actually just, it was funny to see these entrepreneurs and scientists just whip out the hot glue gun because you just glue the circuit board to their back. So when they're done, at least when they're done with theirs, they pull, right. you know, the circuit board off and they just go back to their roach lives. Right. So, And there's no genetic manipulation. Right. It's not so, like they're going to give birth to little cyborg roaches. Right. They, they're not going to breed out there with the other roaches. Right. Your contagion will be. Uh, Pass on. I think they also have very short lifespans, so they might not breed at all. After your amateur surgery. Well, yes. That's it for part one with Emily Anthes about her new book, Frankenstein's Cat. We'll be back in a jiff with part two.